episode 57, Faith in the Fresh Five podcast. I'm your host, Bro Hattie, coming at you from Treaty 7 territory in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. This is part two of a two-part episode. Patty Crowick, she is the author of Becoming Kin. Pick up that book. We are two Canadians on the northern part of Turtle Island. And in this episode, we discuss decolonizing the church. What does that look like? What are the possibilities? I hope you enjoy it. Hey, don't forget to rate and review this podcast. That helps. And also share it. If you are a podcast person, share it with all your podcast friends. Bring it to Podcast Club. That's the thing, right? Let's jump into this episode. Rohati and Patty. Becoming Kin, an Indigenous call to unforgetting the past and reimagining our future. Both our books are very similar. And my chapter five and six does a very quick history. I kind of square into the Western church and its malformed roots, the power structure, power structures, malformed power, um, rooted in white supremacy and all that it avails. And your, I feel like two thirds, you, you, where, where I spend two chapters, you weave story through a good two thirds of your book, if not a little bit more, uh, and then specifically around indigenous and, and then a little bit around um, black folks as well. And the call to, uh, there's a bit of an education here, not a bit. There is a, a depth of understanding that you invite readers to um, journey with. And journey is the apt word because you weave the history through storytelling. And so for that reason, uh, folks should should pick it up, especially folks in Canada, but we also want all the American folks because there's 10 times more to uh, pick it up and tell all their friends and so forth like that. But I want to spend the rest of our time around where we kind of trailed off because we both trailed off as well. <laughs> we trailed off in the sunset around the end. And so the last uh, third for me, part three or four, I'm not sure if I had four parts. And then for you, it was the final three chapters around what the dream, and this is, I don't think either of us use this language. You, you might, but correct me if I'm wrong. Um, the dream of what the liberated community can potentially look like. Yeah. Um, so there's a, a neat phrase. We make the road by walking. Uh, Spanish poet Antonio Machado um, said that. Mariam Caba talks about that as well. You know, we build the future. You, you know, we we create the future by building it together. So, you know, and, and we take several runs at it. You know, maybe we don't, mm, mm-hmm. you know, we try this and maybe that didn't work. And so we try that and maybe that didn't work. Maybe that doesn't work, but we keep trying. And in the process of trying, we do wind up building something, you know, building something better. Uh, that last chapter was really tough for me mm. to write. Um, like you said, about two thirds of the book is history. 
because my editor kept reminding me that you can't assume a base level of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the feedback that I'm getting from people is that they didn't know. They didn't know. And honestly, that baffles me um, mm -hmm. how they didn't know. But what I wanted to do was to show how all of these different things are connected, not just to each other, but to us as mm -hmm. individuals, as communities, that these things are connected. Like people can do not only their own family tree, they can do a professional family tree, a tree of their profession and line it up with history and look at what was going on historically. Like I was a social worker for many years and that's got deep roots in whiteness and all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. um, so that last chapter was really tough, partly because by the time I got there, I wasn't sure I wanted to be in solidarity with them anymore. <laughs> I had just been immersed in, yeah. in how wrong and how wrong whiteness keeps getting everything. Yeah, I was like, I don't know if I wanna be in solidarity with you anymore. So I start with this story about the deer um, because I use a, a lot of Ojibwe stories a, a, you know, a, a, as a way of kind of shifting people's frame of reference. And you know, so I start with the story of the Anishinaabe and the deer. And so you know, in a nutshell, we had been behaving very badly um, and the deer basically left. They abandoned us. They were like, you know what? I know we promised to take care of you, but if you kill us all, then we're not going to be here to take care of you anyway. And so they, you know, kind of, you know, took off into the, into the woods and, you know, so the Anishinaabe had a very hungry winter, you know, because we hadn't, didn't have enough deer. So we had a very hungry winter and winter is storytelling time. So, and I think when you're hungry, you hear some of these stories a little differently. And then in the spring, they sent out runners, they found the deer, the deer explained, and, you know, and, and so they were able to put things back together. And then my friend Alexis Shotwell points out that as we're talking about putting things back together, so I think it's okay for us to retreat into our own space, into our own like Indigenous only or Black only or Black and Indigenous only. I think it's okay for us to retreat into our own spaces. That's part of coming back to ourselves. Mm -hmm. I think it's okay for white Christians, for white people. I think they need to, you know, have a time out and have a good hard think about what they've done and their theology, how their theology played into it. People want to rush past those first um, five chapters, five mm -hmm. or six, five chapters and get to the hope part. I think they really need to sit with it and look at where their theology connects with these things, things, songs that they're still singing. Like there's this really beautiful song about how there's no outsiders to your love and you know i was shipwrecked on the shore and blah 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 there's no outsiders it's a beautiful song um but we're right by the niagara falls border and we're busy keeping people out right canada's mm. got that safe third country agreement that effectively prevents refugees and migrants from you know from central and south america from getting here because they've been to the u.s first safe third country the u.s is not safe <laughs> But they can't come here. And so then they cross, you know, and so then they cross in unsafe ways. And a lot of them have died trying to cross those borders, trying to cross um, not at uh, the board, like not at official border entries, but kind of through woods and fields. You know, so we sing these songs on one hand and yet promote these terrible policies on the other. So I think it's okay for white Christians to have a time out, to have a good hard think about what they've done. That's what that's what the Anishinaabe in the store I had to do. We had a good long time out thinking and returning to ourselves, figuring out who we were and who we wanted to be so that when we come back together, 
and we start forming relationships of solidarity. What my friend Alexis pointed out is this was no longer a consumptive relationship. So the Anishinaabe, we did go back. We still we still hunt deer and, and, and eat deer. Um, but when whiteness, you know, but, you know, the metaphor only works so far, right? So when whiteness and Indigenous and Black, when we come back together, it can no longer be a consumptive relationship. That's what it has been. It has been a consumptive relationship where they take our land, they take your labor, you know, they take, take, take all of these things. And we can't, we can't rebuild a consumptive relationship again. We have to come back as, as peers, as, you know, Black and Indigenous people who are capable of creating our own knowledge in our own ways, in our own languages. Mm -hmm. It's valuable knowledge. It's not like, oh, wow, look at the Native people do that. Cool. Yeah, we've always known that. And our way of knowing is valuable. And, you know, you know, so, but I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. I don't know what that would look like in the academy. I don't know what that would look like in the church. I don't know if the church can decolonize. Mm. I think if it's holding its central mission or its central reason for existing as missionizing, if that's its central reason for existing, then I don't think it can decolonize. Then I think it's inherently colonial. And maybe it just needs to wrestle with that. To linger around is what you've already raised, whether churches, and let's pick that institution since it's pertinent to us, whether churches or institutions, church institutions can change. And I wouldn't think that perhaps in its DNA, but that there are many institutions that currently function through a lens of mission. A lot of them have that as part of it, but that doesn't describe their primary function anymore. Um, I'm thinking out loud here. Its primary function would be to the insiders. And generally, not all, generally to preserve a particular way of life mm. and a particular white way of life. But there, there is some expansionist tendency, right? Like there's, you know, people, you know, busy planting churches and funding, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you is. know, funding, you know, funding but, missions and, you know, building schools yeah. in poor countries without thinking about why, mm-hmm. you know, kind of what system they're setting up, you know, they, they go out and they, they teach literacy because, poor Central American people don't have systems of reading or writing. Like what, what are we exporting here? (laughs) When we, when we have to go there to teach literacy, what are we literacy to what end? Mm -hmm. How do we, how are we defining that? So yeah, but yeah, particular way of life, particular. So yeah, still missionizing, but maybe in a different way. My sense is the effort and the energy and the money in particular is is how to keep things the same from within. And it's not really an expansion thing. Yeah. It's a preservation because of, well, they're they're dwindling or at yeah. best holding holding the same, but they're dwindling. Yeah. And that's a different posture where in that current state, when you draw in aspects that poke the status quo of whiteness, and we'll just call institutional whiteness or institutional Christianity is connected or embedded, it's the same with whiteness, that to adopt postures 
which I think are historical to the church, such as justice, you're actually pressing against one of the cherished icons of church function today, which is the preservation of whiteness. Yeah, you... Maybe that's too far. No, you said something, and I'm going to kind of flip around into your book, because you said something in there, was talking about Rome and about kind of the church align, the church aligning with Rome. And, and I made a note in the margins mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that the church shifted its collective its collective mentality for an individual mentality because as it existed collectively, it existed in opposition to the state. Yes. Yeah. And when it became part of the state, it could no longer exist in opposition to the state. It had to, so, you know, so now it's all about my personal relationship with Jesus. It's no longer about this kind of collective identity that builds liberation from the ground up. Um, Uh You know, it, it, it's it about it's about coming in, it's power. about coming in with the answers. Yeah, you know, like you know, to, to these <laughs> devastated communities. Sarah Augustine asked uh-huh. this beautiful question. They never asked us if we had good news for them. Yeah. Ooh. And so, like the institutional church, and maybe it's a, it's if as it exists as an institution, it can't decolonize because I don't think institutions are capable of decolonizing. Yeah, that's not what they're um, designed for. They're not designed. They're designed. <laughs> They're designed for exactly what you said is self-preservation. And Chrissy Stroop said the most amazing thing on Twitter about conservatism being abusive, leading to abuse because it's inevitably abusive, because institutions will protect themselves at the expense of the people who inhabit them. And we see that happening over and over and over again. Church communities you know, child welfare is governments, you know, we're watching it. Um, We're watching the Royal family implode (laughs) because over and over again, these institutions protect themselves at the expense of the people who inhabit them and the people who inhabit them are just supposed to put up with it. Are just supposed to stay quiet and accept it because somehow the institution is greater than they are. And that's nonsense. Well, you either, you assimilate for that either, the drive to preserve a particular way of life or for that sense of power. But if you don't do those things, you're going to get hurt. And a lot of folks are getting hurt. So the, a lot of native traditions have like a sacred clown society or some kind of contrary or trickster figure. Mm -hmm. And the whole role of that trickster figure or if you're a contrary or a member of the clown society um, is not to be silly or ridiculous the way we think of clowns, um, but to provoke change, right? Like if the protocol is that you enter the sweat lodge this way, the sacred clown will enter it wrong, you know, is to, you know, to prevent these things from ossifying Mm. and becoming more important than the people, right? Their traditions need to serve the people. (laughs) And a friend of mine, um, because I haven't completely lost hope in the church, I know there's a lot of good abolition work um, coming out of some churches. And so this fr- the, the friend of mine, Jonathan, and I have to follow up with him on that, he made a reference that the church used to have that a similar tradition of clowns in the church whose role was to upend tradition. 
and to prevent this kind of institutionalization of belief. And that's really interesting to me because I think if the church could let go of the institution and start listening for what good news, because if God is, if the kingdom of God is among us, if the kingdom of God is here, then shouldn't they be looking for it instead of trying to impose it? Mm. (laughs) Shouldn't they be wondering what has God been doing here for? Like, wow, like you have been without that, you know, you have existed for thousands of years in this place what has God been doing here? Like, what kind of cool things do you have to tell us about what God has been doing here? But they never asked those questions. It was just about imposing their version of the kingdom on us. And so if the institutional church fails, that's okay. Yeah. They, people, they shouldn't be invested in that. They should be yeah. invested in their community instead. Especially if you're folks who are on the margins and you know that giving up, you know, costs you even more to try to play the game, as it were, within the institution, because it costs you more, it really causes us pause, it should at least, to consider whether or not that effort and whether or not putting your body literally on the line is worth it, or whether you could take that same effort, that same vitality or life or energy and put it into something that grants liberation. Yeah. When we, when we talk about inclusion, we always need to be asked, inclusion into what? Mm, to- what is it exactly that we're seeking inclusion into and why? Um, yeah, yeah. Why do we want chairs at these tables? Mm-hmm. And, and, and why, why don't we just build our own table? Exactly. <laughs> you know? And I feel have our, own, have our own place. It's because we have some formation within us that cares to get dad's approval, to get white dad's approval, yeah. to get the institutional approval, that that matters. I, I only speak of my own experience, perhaps, but it's like you would put your energy there because I don't know if I have transferable skills elsewhere, but because I I care for that approval within my old formation set yeah. that that matters, right? Yet today we think of, and you said the church as a whole, there are possibilities, uh, there is hope was the word you used. There's hope. Uh, what does it look like? Uh, it certainly is um, not institutional, so that so um, it's more organic. It's, ergo, it's smaller. What are the features of life-giving community? Because so much of the language is the same. You know, all the language we grew up in for our context, evangelicalism, it's really similar. You know, let's do community well, a life-giving community. Let's uh, love each other well. Um, let's do good. You know, there's a lot of, of language that needs to may perhaps be reclaimed or discarded. But if we think of investing into the new thing, what are the critical features of those new things? Knowing, A, there's no rubric or formula, and B, we're figuring out this as we go. Uh, The line, uh, the quote that you used was, you make the road by walking. If you were to grab highlights or ideas or even pieces of a dream of what these communities 
can look like in their function or organization or even beliefs, what would some of those features be? Well, I think of my hand the hand drum group I belong to. Or I think about the lodge where I've gone for moon ceremonies. Because we all exist in communities that we like. Hmm. Right? Like we all exist in some way in the communities that we like, even if it's just like George Carlin, you know, joked about, you know, there was a, a you know, the, the group of people who get together to complain about their job. And it's like, yeah, it's called the bar. <laughs> so, but we all get together in communities that we like. You know, we all have friends that we share meals with. And that's, that's where it starts. Hmm. We have, you know, or, you know, we belong to a soccer club. That's our community. Like we, we, I overthink things so much. Yeah. Um, but does soccer club, is soccer club chasing justice and liberation? It might. It could. No, it, it, yeah, it might. It could. But does it? Like, it might. It could. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like my drum group might could chase justice. Like there's, there's some things that a couple of things that we have done um, to deliberately chase justice. We uh, ribbon skirts. Um, there's a lot of people, there, there's uh, women who don't feel comfortable in ribbon skirts for a lot of reasons. Um, but there's also two-spirited people who don't wear, you know, you know who, who wouldn't, don't wear ribbon skirts. You know, so we decided early on that skirts would be admired, not required. You know, so we were, if we were going to do a moon ceremony or perform somewhere, if the elder required us to wear skirts, then we would ask another elder to conduct the ceremony for us. Because I'm not going to tell an elder how to shape their ceremony. Mm. Right, like their 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 ceremony, their rules. But if we're inviting somebody to do a ceremony for us, then we're going to invite somebody who doesn't who is, isn't going to require skirts. So that was one early thing that we did to make sure that people in our group felt welcome. And then for years, we were called the Strong Water Women. And we recently changed our name to the Strong Water Singers because we had a non-binary member. And I, it it occurred to me that strong water women did not reflect that non-binary member, mm-hmm. and so I asked, "You said it's okay. We so we need to change this to the strong water singers, like that kind of work for justice. Yeah. It can, it can start that simply mm-hmm. in whatever community you're in. So you start looking, and that's you know kind of also a task in the book. You know, look at where you're organized, where you're already organized, whether it's your union or your workplace or just your friends that you get together with regularly. What can you change? What needs to change? What are you perpetuating? And then and what can you do differently? You know, anybody can organize a reading circle. I mean, that's really what the what churches are, is their book club. It's a book club. that meets every Sunday to learn from one, one book, you know? So it's basically a big book club. So you can organize a small book club that puts the Bible in conversation with other books, puts the Bible in conversation with Miriam Kaba's work on abolition, Hmm. Hmm. puts the Bible in conversation, you know, with your book or my book. And, you know, how can we understand these stories differently? Like the good Samaritan is a real BM. I've got a real BM. I'm on it about that one. Because the Bible doesn't, Jesus doesn't call him good. He's just the Samaritan. Hmm. We call him the good Samaritan to separate him from all of those bad Samaritans. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we make him the good the good one. We make him the good one. Um, but Jesus doesn't call him the good Samaritan. He's just a Samaritan. And the people, the robbers, 
who harm, you know, who harm, you know, they're not identified as Jewish or Samaritan. So, you know, you, you could make an argument that they were Roman because they're not identified hmm. as Jewish or, or Samaritan. And, and then we make up these stories about how the priest and the Levite were afraid of becoming unclean. Well, that wasn't an issue because they were heading away from Jerusalem. They were done. And you existed in states of ritual uncleanness all the time. That's just normal life. It's not like you had to live in a state of ritual purity like all the time. That was only important if they were on their way to temple. But it wasn't. It was no longer important on the way out of temple. So we we impose that on the story. It's not there. Jesus, and, and then when you take that story and you put it up against a story from I think it's Second Chronicles, where the Jews are coming back from exile, it was the Samaritans who helped them. Hmm. And Jesus' listeners would have known that they, that would have been like their thing, right? Because they're listening to Torah every every Saturday, uh, you know, at, at synagogue or uh, temple. So Jesus was asking them to return to themselves, to remember old alliances hmm. in the face of Roman opposition, in the face of, you know, because they're both experiencing Roman oppression. And so that's something that we can do inside the church is we can look at these stories and say, is there another way? Is, is there a, a, a way that this story can move us towards justice rather than self-righteousness? Because so many mm, of the ways we yes. read these stories move us yes. towards self-righteousness. Yeah. You know, and, you know, and for me that doing that has meant listening to Jewish writers, listening to Jewish thinkers, mm. uh, like da uh, Rabbi Daniel Rutenberg has been a huge influence on me. Um, oh, I'm just going to, I'm just going to, uh, Amy Jill Levine, um, I've read uh, some of her work. Uh, Rabbi Mike on Twitter has on fire. Um, you know, so I've been listening to a lot of Jewish because they're giving me a much different way yeah. to yeah. read those stories. Of our, own, of our own, what we would call our own stories, in fact, through the lens of their well, story. Well, we make so much, yeah. we're making so much noise right now about how Jesus was Jewish and the early church was Jewish and blah, blah, blah. Well, okay, then let's listen to so what do Jewish people think about these stories? Yes. <laughs> if we're making so much noise about that, then let's listen mm -hmm. to them and let's hear these stories differently because that's, you know, to kind of get back, you know, to kind of my, my parable of the, um, the Anishinaabe and, and the deer, that's what the Anishinaabe did that winter. They listened to their stories because what else are you going to do? Um, like we're all, you know, in the winter now, we're all hunkering down, you know, watching Netflix and Disney and whatever. So that's what we do in the winter. We listen to stories. And then events in our lives change how we hear that story. Like, I don't know, I watch The X-Files all the time. I'm obsessed with it. Um, but since I've gotten really oriented around abolition, it's propaganda. I see it now as propaganda. Mm. And I'm kind of horrified by some of that. And we've seen what QAnon has done, you know, to, to our political system. And I see now how X-Files really contributed to that, hmm. to the idea of conspiracy theories hmm. and shadow governments and all of that stuff. You know, so every time we enter these familiar stories, we come to them differently and we see something different in them. But we don't always, as particularly with the Bible, we don't give ourselves permission to read them differently. We somehow invest 
whatever tradition we're part of as some kind of ultimate truth. Like my mom will often say that something is biblical, that this way yeah, it's biblical. Yeah, yeah. It's like polygamy is biblical too, mom. Like there's everybody the thinks God. that their way of reading the text is biblical. Like that's to invest that kind of authority in whatever preacher you follow is really kind of ridiculous. But we need to, Christians need to give themselves permission to read these stories differently, to bring themselves to them differently, and to not be so invested in the institution. The institution, and, and really the Protestant church has a long history of fragmenting off and trying trying something different. There's a long tradition of that in the Protestant church. Mm -hmm. So keep doing that. Keep doing that. <laughs> <laughs> keep doing that. Keep, keep, yeah. keep trying. Take another run at it. <laughs> I don't know, man. The Zapatistas have a beautiful way of thinking of, of, about many worlds. That there are many worlds. There's, you know, a thousand worlds waiting to be born. Mm -hmm. So really, we need to shed this idea that there is a single world that we all must conform to and we, we all must live with them. There are many worlds. And, you, you know, we, we, live, we, we live in a world of many worlds. And we can we can coexist. I mean, if the Anishinaabe and the Haudenosaunee can make treaty and coexist in this place, anybody can get can get along, because we are two very different peoples. Like even like our political systems, our cosmologies, we are very different people. So if we can find a way to live together in peace and you know goodwill and all of that, um, I think really anybody can. This concludes a two-part series with Patty Crowick. Thanks for listening in. I hope that you pulled out some interesting and insightful ideas about ways forward into liberation. Would you do me a favor? And if you enjoyed these episodes, please share them. Also, review our podcast, leave a rating wherever you listen to them. We'll see you on the next episode. <laughs>